Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Shipped in After Dark. I'm Mary. I'm Leanne. And we are back this week with a little discussion. We're pivoting, changing our topic a little bit. We are trying to focus a little bit more on Black featured queer media this Mm -hmm. week. So obviously we could never focus enough on it to really fully give it the appreciation it deserves. However, we want to at least do something. Mm -hmm. So we want to talk about Moonlight. Yeah. And this movie is incredibly fucking powerful. Every time I watch it, I mean, thank God it won the Oscar. Remember that? This was the one where everybody thought La La Land was going to win. And then they called La La Land's name and it turned out to be Moonlight. So I'm going to say something also controversial because at this point, Everybody hates my opinion on Carol anyways, so I'll just go out there and say it. I hated La La Land. Oh my God, you didn't like La La Land? I fucking hated La La Land. And so, oh, did not like it. Could not even finish it. I didn't like it so much. And when I watched Moonlight- Did you watch the end? Okay. No, I I didn't even make it through the movie. I'm such a sucker for movies about the industry- that it's totally right up my alley. And you know I fucking love musicals. I mean, in the first 10 minutes of that movie where they did the opening musical number on the, I forget what highway it was, I was like, I'm in. I love it. And I have a friend who hates musicals who liked La La Land. She hates musicals. Yeah. Loved La La Land. So I know I'm the outlier here. I'll take the hit. It's fine. I can appreciate uh, that it's probably an excellent film and I'm just missing out on it. I can all right, take well, that. Well, you and I can argue about it later. Yes. But anyway, but I was Moonlight. super thrilled that Moonlight won. I yes. mean, you have a black man director, screenwriter, and it stars all these incredibly gifted, talented black actors. Mahershala Ali. Mahershala Ali and Janelle Monae uh, and all the guys who played Sharon. Sharon and Kevin. Yeah. Through the years. Oh, my. This movie, I remember the first time I watched it, I think I had my brother-in-law's screeners and I was watching it on my iPad in bed. Like, I watch everything. And I was just bawling. And Allison woke up in the middle of the night and was like, what's wrong? And I was like, uh, it really takes your breath away. It's yes. so moving. Yes. And I remember watching it when it first came out in, was that like 2016, 2016. 2017? Yeah. Yeah. And I watched it two or three times that year. And I've watched it a couple times since, but it's probably been maybe a year or two since I've seen it. And watching it again this week, I'm still taken aback at how this story is probably the story of hundreds, if not thousands Mm -hmm. of black men. But the way that it's told is so powerful mm-hmm. and incredible. And it's shot so beautifully. And the use of sound is so amazing. And I'll let you dig into that more. Yeah. But I was just taken aback at the storytelling aspect of this movie. Mm-hmm. It's just so perfect. So on par. And I just can't get over it. And like you said, the acting. I mean, the acting of the young boy who plays young Chiron mm-hmm. is, I don't know. I can't even. They're all incredible. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So that concept in and of itself is just really difficult. When you have different actors playing the same character over the years, not only do you have to get people that look similar, but you have to get the mannerisms right. And you have to match each other's eye movement and the way that they hold things and the way that they carry themselves and the way that they look at you. I mean, it's so complicated and they just nailed it. And I'm glad that we decided to pivot and look at this movie this week because 
it's even more poignant now, I feel like, watching it now, understanding, not understanding, because you and me, we're never going to understand what it's like to be a black man in this country. But no. just with so much focus right now and people trying to educate themselves, it's just overwhelming to watch this movie and think about the plight of black men in our country, gay or not. Yeah. So I'm glad we're talking about it this week. I think that it's obviously, I mean, I'm already emotional just thinking about it, but I'm glad that we're doing this. Oh, yeah. I mean, we talk all the time about how experience and where we are in life informs how we view a movie. And I think that our collective cultural experience right now with the Black Lives Matter movement and with what's happening to Black people in our country mm-hmm. is informing our view of this movie so much more than it would have four years ago even. Yeah. So it's a very good time to be watching this movie. Mm-hmm. But before we talk about it, let's do Ann Lister's Thermometer. Okay. So in Florida, it is 75 degrees Fahrenheit <laughs> and 24 degrees Celsius. Oh, okay. We're close. In Los Angeles right now, it's 72 degrees Fahrenheit, and that's 22 degrees Celsius. You beat me by just a little bit. No, I'm under you by just a little bit. I know. You were 74. You beat me. Oh, it's cooler here. Yeah. It's better if it's cooler. No, it's better if it's hotter. (laughs) It all depends (laughs) on your perspective, right? Not in Florida, though. It's too humid. Yeah, exactly. So how has your COVID coping been going? I'm not going to lie to you, Mary. (laughs) Your isolation (laughs) coping. Not great. It's not great. I mean, it's been everything. It's been everything the whole time. But this week, it's really my diet. Since I'm at home and I don't have cereal on the way to work or make myself breakfast while I'm getting ready or something, I just kind of have a cup of coffee and snack and then lunchtime rolls around and I just keep snacking and then five o'clock rolls around and I have a headache because all I had all day was chips, you know? And I'm like, yeah. what the fuck am I doing? So I need to work on that. Among many other things that I need to work on, I need to do better. Yeah. But yeah. How are you guys doing? It's okay. I feel like we have, so I've gotten out of exercising habits, which is bad for me. Mm-hmm. I do the same thing with eating though. I've gotten into comfort eating. So at the very beginning of quarantine, I was drinking a lot because I was mm-hmm. like, you know, I came yeah. home every night and I had a drink and I was yeah. like, this is it. I'm good. Yeah. And then I realized I was drinking every single night of the week. I was like, I got to stop this. But it may have been better because it was lower calorie. (laughs) So now I'm shame eating. I found myself on the way home today getting Taco Bell and then eating it in the car and then (laughs) hiding the trash in the dumpster (laughs) so that no one in the house would know I had Taco Bell. That's my emotional coping right now because we just installed a brand new full phone system at work. And when they did the call forwarding, when they forwarded our old phone line to our new phone line, they didn't multipath forward all the lines. So we only had one phone line all day. And when our whole existence depends on our clients calling us from the curb because we're curbside and letting us know they've arrived, you can imagine. Oh, my God. Was it like the 1990s? (laughs) Oh, such chaos. Such chaos. So, yeah, that was bad today. Stuff like that. But on the plus side, we started doing social distancing dinner once a week with our friends where they come and we sit outside around a fire and have a meal outside together. And that has helped immensely that's good with my overall sadness and anxiety and i have been longing deeply for a lemon tree and i came home today and there was a lemon tree in our front yard oh i know that's awesome so it's the little things that make you feel really loved and cared yeah. about 
So, you know, if you have people in your life that love you and support you, then all those little gestures can help you get through. Yeah, for sure. All right. More to come as never ending COVID <laughs> continues. This never ending COVID chaos. I mean, I feel like this isn't an, even a news story anymore, although I guess we'll see what happens. Yeah, apparently there's this new wonder drug miracle cure, which is something that we use very commonly in veterinary medicine. So I'm not excited to see how that turns out. Well, I know somebody who we can test it on. Yeah? Yeah, he's got a fence around his big old White House now. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. There you go. Don't come and arrest me for this. So I'm sure he's sitting on a pile of hydroxychloroquinone at this point. So it's fine. Yeah. Did you ever watch South Park? Yeah, of course. That whole episode where they cured AIDS with money. (laughs) And how that one guy, I can't even remember who the character was, but they were like, how does he not have AIDS? And it turned out because it was sleeping on all his money. Oh, my God. Yeah. So So. more to come in the United States of crazy. Well, they didn't sign us up to be comedians. No. So Moonlight. (laughs) (laughs) On to our serious topic. I'm sorry. (laughs) We're getting delirious at this point, I think. For sure. Well, I told you I haven't showered in a couple of days, so I think I just need to take a shower and start fresh. Yeah. Let's talk about Moonlight. And before we get into Kevin and Chiron, let's talk about how fucking incredible Mahershala Ali is. Yes. He's just so good in everything, but especially this. Yeah. He does not play any character in any movie the way that he plays Juan. And he plays a huge variety of characters. He's mm-hmm. in Luke Cage on Netflix. He's in House of Cards. Mm-hmm. He's in... He was in True oh, Detective. In, yeah, and he was in... The Green Book. The Green Book. That's what I was trying to think of. Yeah. I kept, my brain kept saying The Green Mile, and I was right. like, no. No, not um, that. No, very, very different it's very movies. Very sad. But none of those characters are anything like Juan, and it's just, he's so fantastic at playing this incredibly complex, but low-key underscored character in Mm -hmm. this movie. Mm -hmm. Juan is this, you don't get it right off the bat. He is a more top-level kind of drug dealer. Mm -hmm. He basically takes the money from the people who are on the streets actually selling the drugs and provides them with the product. So he's kind of like... We should just say as a disclaimer, I know literally nothing about drug dealing. So Except what I learned in movies. (laughs) Yeah. So So if we get the terminology wrong or... Yeah. No clue. Yeah, no clue. But I love that too because I think you think when a person thinks about a drug dealer, you have an image in your mind and it's not necessarily this guy. I mean... no. Like you said, he's super complex and he's the most father figure, the most, I mean, Teresa too, but he is such a loving father figure. Yes. And I think that it's so cool in this movie that you really have that struggle between somebody who's a drug dealer. This is going to come up later in the movie when they have that conversation at the table. And he's the one who cares the most about Chiron, you know? Yeah. And I think it just proves that maybe you're not always able to necessarily choose the life that you're given, but Mm -hmm. you make the best of the life that you have. And I think that's pretty evident in the way that he lives his life. I mean, he's got a very stable home life. Mm -hmm. He's got a very calm, very 
soothing, rational personality. I mean, he's none of these made up Hollywood thug-esque drug dealer type personalities. I mean, he's just a normal guy trying to make it from day to day. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really important because I imagine that there are a lot of those people out there in the world. Yeah, they're not scary, terrible people. Exactly. They're just trying to do a job. And that Mm -hmm. just happens to be the job that they are probably trapped in, ultimately. Mm -hmm. And we find out later in the movie that Chiron goes to prison and he ends up getting trapped in the same cycle. So he goes to prison. He meets someone who then, as soon as he gets out of prison, puts him on the streets Mm -hmm. as a drug dealer. And then he moves up through the ranks as a drug dealer to become essentially the same person Juan is. Mm -hmm. So we can kind of see how you can get trapped in this cycle. Right. And it's not really something that you set out as a kid saying, I'm going to do this. You don't grow up on the streets and become a thug and do all these things. I mean, it's so easy to get just trapped in this situation that you can't escape, Mm -hmm. which is tough. I mean, it's one of those bigger questions that we have to ask of how can we break these cycles? Yeah. And actually, I just looked it up because I remember at the end when Chiron and Kevin meet back up and he says that he's trapping. I think the actual word is trapping. So I just looked it up because I don't know this, but it's slang and it means selling drugs, usually coke or meth. So it's literally called trapping. And I feel like maybe that has something to do with the fact that you get I mean, trapped in it, (laughs) trapped in it. I'm. Yeah. Anyway, this I think is really important to see because it goes both ways because you see people that are on drugs. I mean, you see Chiron's mom, Mm -hmm. Paula, who struggles with it and is clean at the end of the movie, but it obviously deals with complicated stuff. And I think it's important to see that you may have a job drug dealing. It doesn't necessarily make them a bad person. You can be trying to do good in the world, but also have a job where you're a drug dealer, you know? So I don't know. And the reality is none of us know the circumstances that have led that person to that point. We don't know what they're trying to take care of, who they're trying to look out for. And maybe this was literally the only thing standing between them and homelessness. Mm Mm-hmm. And this goes back, I think, to the greater question that was posed kind of in Les Miserables or Les Miserables. I don't mm-hmm. know how you say it. Just People say, say Les Mis. Les Mis. <laughs> if you read, I mean, the whole book starts with, with him stealing bread. Him stealing the bread to feed his yeah. family. So what wouldn't you do to take care of your family or yeah. yourself? Would you? I mean, could any of us sit here and say, if I had no other option, literally none, I was out of options, but somebody handed me a baggie of drugs and said, sell this on the street and I'll give you $10,000 for it. We wouldn't do it. Well, that's an interesting point because look at shows like Weeds or Breaking Mm -hmm. Bad. You've got white educated adults who get into selling drugs to take care of their family, to pay off cancer. I forget what it is in Breaking Bad. I think it's an interesting dichotomy here because when you see it, we are seeing that same kind of representation in a black community and it's villainized and it's villainized. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's never shown as a necessity, but like you said, exactly. When you look in weeds and in breaking bad, he starts out at least to try to start to pay for his cancer treatments and to set Mm -hmm. aside enough money to pay off his house and to pay for his kid's college if he's to die. 
And so those motives, of course, immediately we empathize with. And we're like, yeah, I could see myself selling meth for that reason. But if you see a black person on the street selling meth, your first thought isn't that person is attempting to keep themselves from starvation Mm -hmm. or homelessness. It's that they're a criminal. They're a criminal. And I think this is some of the things that I've had to really think about while watching movies like this is how many of those thoughts are pervasive racism in media even, Mm -hmm. you know? For sure. For sure, because like you said, we don't actually know any drug dealers, right? I haven't seen a drug dealer no. in the flesh probably since white high or school. Black. Yeah, I mean, since high school, and it was a white kid that just had a bunch of extra money from his parents. It and was some moldy like, pot in a backpack. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so that's the thing. I think that comes from media, that comes from movies and television, what right. we see. And that's why I love this One of the things I love about this movie, because I think it brings up these questions about what is love and what the relationships that we have with these adults in our lives when we're children, because Paula, the first time we see his mom, she's in her nurse uniform. You know, she comes in, she's got her LPN tag. She comes home and she's like, where were you? And immediately she makes it same judgment. That Juan is a bad guy because he looks you know. Exactly. He tells exactly. her where Chiron was, which mm-hmm. is probably a bad area of town, and she's immediately judging him. Every time Chiron goes over, I keep seeing, we have Janelle Monet and Mahershala Ali in our notes, so I keep seeing their real names instead of their names in the movie. Yeah, so Teresa t- and Juan. Yeah, so every time Chiron goes to Teresa and Juan's house, it's homey, and they welcome him in, and they have a bed for him to sleep in, and they have food on the table, and she gives him orange juice, and you and see- And pep talks. Yeah, and pep talks, and when you see Chiron at his own house with his mom, the first time she's in her nurse outfit, and there are times when they have discussions, but it is not a safe environment, and he is not- comfortable or feeling really loved there. And so I think that that's so interesting to see that when you have somebody on paper who's a nurse and somebody else on paper who's a drug dealer. But one of them is a family to him and the other one isn't. Yeah. And I think this comes up in the, there's this scene where Juan takes Chiron to the beach. So Chiron keeps coming back over and over, even though he doesn't really talk. And Juan takes Chiron to the beach to go swimming. And there's this beautiful moment where Juan teaches Chiron to swim. He teaches him how to float, Mm -hmm. which is incredible. And he says, just trust me. And I mean, it's just this beautifully shot scene where the water's kind of lapping up over his ears. And I mean, we all remember that moment of learning how to float for the first time and what Mm -hmm. that was like. And then they're sitting on the beach afterwards and they're talking. And this scene is where the movie title came from because he tells Chiron the story about the woman in Cuba yelling at him for running around in the dark and catching up all the light Mm -hmm. because his skin would look blue in the moonlight. Right. And then he says that no one can ever decide who you're going to be for you that you have to decide it for yourself, mm-hmm. essentially. Yeah, And that's when you start to really realize that this relationship is becoming much more of a father-son mentorship figure for Chiron. He's giving Chiron a history that he didn't have before because mm-hmm. he's giving Chiron his own history. Right. We've all talked about this before in the past, that history is just stories passed down from person to person, he's giving that to Chiron as something he hasn't had in the past. Mm-hmm. And then he takes him home and we get this contrast 
to the scene with his mom where he walks in. And this is the moment that we find out his mom is addicted to drugs. Right. She opens the door and just yanks Chiron in and slams the door on Juan's face without saying anything to him or not allowing Juan to see inside. And she has presumably her drug dealer or the guy who's buying her drugs is at her kitchen table. And she takes him to the back room immediately without any other comment. And Chiron is just standing in the hallway, staring down the hallway at them. And that hallway will become like a recurring scene throughout the movie. Yeah. I mean, the first time that we meet his mom, the movie starts with him getting beaten up and running away, which is also something that's going to come up throughout the movie. And so he spends some time with Juan and then, but doesn't really talk. And then when Juan drops him off the first time, you see his mom and it looks like she's a single working mom. She's in a tough spot, which we can totally empathize with because she's got a job and a kid who she's Mm -hmm. trying to take care of. She's trying to do both. And it's that next time that you see that she is addicted to drugs or at least doing drugs and doesn't treat him that well. Nobody ever treats anybody well when they're high. No. Not that kind of high, at least. Yeah. So we start to see that kind of breakdown in Chiron's life and why he might not want to go home and why he might just want to be with Juan. You can just see the pain in him that he carries. I mean, he barely speaks. His only real friend is Kevin. The first time we see Kevin and Chiron interact, really, all the kids were playing soccer with a ball of rolled up newspaper. Yeah. You know, a ball made from newspaper. And Chiron is kind of off to the side and then him and Kevin kind of start wrestling and you see that Kevin at least doesn't treat him the way that everybody else does. Or he kind of messes with him and plays with him, but there's something under there where you know that he's not going to push him too far or take advantage of him, which is why later on everything that happens is so heartbreaking. You know, because Kevin is the only one of the kids who really cares, sees him at all. Yeah. And they have this easy affection for one another. Mm-hmm. I mean, when they're kids, obviously it's not romantic, but it's just a ease with one another right off the bat. And they wrestle, they have a solid friendship base immediately. Mm-hmm. And you can tell that there are no other people that Chiron really lets in. Everybody talks about how he will not talk to them. Mm-hmm. And it is obvious that there are things that Chiron would not be a part of, like the whole dick size comparison ring. Yeah, what the hell was that? I don't know. Is that a thing? Is that something young boys do? Maybe. I don't know. But obviously Chiron would not have gotten to enjoy that situation, Mm -hmm. for whatever it's worth, Mm -hmm. if Kevin had not been his friend. Yeah, but also that brings up the question of, I mean, it's alluded to throughout that, I mean, everybody calls him a faggot. Right. Yeah. And later on, he's going to ask Juan what that means. But at this point, you know, you don't know. You just get these little you hints. Get a, yeah, little hints of the way that he, I don't even want to say like the way that he looks or the way that he walks because I don't think any of that stuff, you it's can't the, really He's tell, pensive in certain situations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the way that he touches Kevin's cheek when he's bleeding or the way that when they do the dick size comparison ring, he doesn't look at anyone else. Right. He looks away. And I think that you and I discussed this in a previous podcast about how when you would go in a locker room with other women, you Mm -hmm. wouldn't look because you felt like you were taking advantage. And maybe it's that awkwardness of not yet knowing or not yet really realizing what you are. But but it still feels uncomfortable and something inside you tells you not to look. 
Right. And so yeah. I think this movie has a good way of giving you those little insights without mm-hmm. being like, he walks like he's gay or yeah. whatever, you know? I mean, they give you these little innuendos early on. Mm-hmm. So we find out that Juan is inadvertently Chiron's mom's drug dealer. So he is the mid-level guy and his dealers are dealing to her. Yeah. And he finds out because they buy from his dealers and then park right down the street and immediately start using, which he does yeah. not allow. So right. he goes to tell them to get the fuck out of there, to not draw attention to the fact that his dealers are around mm-hmm. and realizes that it's her. And so she gets in this huge fight with him. And basically says, what the fuck are you going to do? Raise my son for me? Mm -hmm. Are you going to tell him why all the kids call him a faggot, essentially? He doesn't know what to say. She keeps saying, are you going to raise my son? Are you going to raise my son? Are you going to tell him why the other boys pick on him? And he doesn't know what to say. And he doesn't know what to do. And this situation, it's so hard because you've got two adults. The way that I internalized this is that you've got... Two parents, right? At this point, she's his biological mom, but he is being a loving caretaker to Chiron. And neither of them know what they are supposed to do because they can't change him, right? They know that they can't change him. And the way that I felt about it is nothing that they do is really going to make his life easier. I mean, I've had this conversation with my own mom, not the same at all, obviously. But when you're a parent and you know that you have a child who's gay, that is a type of pain that you are not going to be able to alleviate for them. Because it is incredibly hard to go through life as a gay person. I don't even know what it is like to go through the world as a black person and on top of that, a black gay person. But Yeah, I can't imagine. You've got somebody who's going to have an even more difficult life than already do. And I think it comes out in this really just raw and emotionally heartbreaking scene with the two of them because nothing that they do is going to make it easier for him. He's still going to have to go through that by himself to a certain extent, which we're going to see him do, you know? Yeah, yeah, we do. But I do want to point out that right after this scene is a scene that I love and it sticks with me and it comes up again later in the movie when we transition to the third act. It's a scene where Chiron is at home and it implies, I think, that it's the same night that Juan finds mm-hmm. his mom. And everything in the background of that same hallway that we talked about a few minutes ago is neon lit with Mm -hmm. pink. And she comes out into the hallway slow-mo and we pan back to Chiron and we see his face just staring at her like this mix of hurt and resentfulness and anger and just so many emotions on this kid's face. And then it zips back to her and it's back to regular speed, if not maybe like a little bit faster than regular speed. Mm-hmm. And it's just pure violin music, no dialogue sounds. And you could just see her screaming, I hate you at him. Oh, I thought she said, you're a goddamn faggot. No, because the sound comes in later. So when you transitions to act three, the hallway scene comes up again and it's a nightmare. That is what wakes him up which is the transition to act three. And it's, I hate you, or I fucking hate you, I believe, something like that. So this is the exact same scene. They just put her sound back into it. No, I know. But if you actually slow it down when she's talking and you just read her lips, I think she calls him a goddamn faggot. Because in the next scene, we see him go back over to Juan and Teresa's and he asks what a faggot is. It could be a mix of both. She could have been yelling at him more than just that. Yeah, 
No, it absolutely could have been. Yeah. I mean, honestly, either one that it is, this mm-hmm. scene is still amazing, oh, the way that they filmed it. Because mm-hmm. then it cuts back to him and his head is just kind of cocked and mm-hmm. hanging and he's just staring at her. Just blank. Yeah. And I mean, I've been this kid. I've been that kid just getting screamed hateful things at them. And you don't know what to do or what to say or how to cope with it or how Mm -hmm. to deal with it. And you're just there. Like you're just experiencing it. And you don't have the emotional maturity yet to have any coping mechanism Mm -hmm. or any reaction. So you're just there. It's such a weird thing to see on a screen. I think that they did such a good job of it because anytime this happens in the movie, I feel like the characters are centered in the frame. And like you said, they pull the diegetic sound and you just get the non-diegetic sound of the violin. It's going to be a little bit different later on when it comes back up again, but it just heightens it. And like you said, this kid, he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't have any coping mechanisms. He's just taking it. What do you do when you have a young child who everything about this is just inevitable for him. He can't change the color of his skin. He can't change whether or not he's gay. He can't can't change change his mom. He can't change the fact that he's got a mom who's stoned or whatever and yelling at him. I mean, it's so heartbreaking. And then you see him go to Juan and Teresa's and he sits down and he asks what a faggot is. And Juan just handles it so maturely And Teresa, too. And he says it's a mean way to say somebody's gay. Yeah. It's a word to make gay people feel bad. mm -hmm. Yep. God. And I think Chiron asks if he is, doesn't he? Yeah, he says, says, am I a faggot? Yeah, am I a faggot? And Juan just says, you could be gay, but don't ever let anyone call you a faggot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then basically they just tell him he doesn't have to know anything about what he is right then. Mm-hmm. He can find out whenever he finds out and whatever he is, is totally fine. And they'll just deal with it whenever he figures it out. Right. And I don't know how more perfectly you could handle that kind of conversation. With a child. Yeah. Yeah. Because you can tell there's so much shame there that he doesn't really even get it, but he doesn't want to be it. You know, right. he doesn't want to be that thing that everybody's always hurt him for, beaten him up for, chased him for, made fun of him for. But these two people who have no biological relation to him are being his family and saying, you don't have to know any of that right now. You know, you can be gay, but nobody needs to call you a faggot. I mean, I was watching this thinking that his mom had just called him a faggot because, like I said, I was trying to read her lips. But it's just heartbreaking. We've talked about this multiple times, which is that even if you distance yourself from the parents that you were raised with, they're always going to be there. They always haunt you. (laughs) Yeah, they always haunt you. And we're going to see him be grown up later on. And she's still there. And he ends up having to take care of her. Yeah. I mean, it never leaves you no matter how hard you try to forget about it or push it away. And ultimately, I mean, they have this moment where right after the faggot conversation, Chiron asks Juan if he deals drugs. And then he says his mom is a drug addict. Mm-hmm. He says my mom buys drugs or something like that. Right. And Juan mm-hmm. basically says, I know. Yeah. And Chiron puts two and two together and leaves. Yeah. I mean, and you know, this is a moment in which Juan could try to defend himself, could try to lie, could try to cover things up. Mm-hmm. What more of a powerful life lesson could you get as a child than someone who is willing to be 
honest, mm-hmm. brutally honest in a way about themselves like that. Right. I mean, just this whole scene is so powerful to me. Right. That's why I thought it was so interesting to have the one with so many admirable qualities like honesty and openness and acceptance of this young child be a drug dealer. And the one who is a nurse and is biological mom be the one who is not those things towards him. Yeah. Well, I mean, in this society, I think nurses have been the most trusted profession for the past bajillion years. Mm -hmm. And it's ridiculous. I mean, we just immediately hold up certain professions as being the most trustworthy and we don't question it whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And it's mind boggling to me. Yeah. So after this, we transition to act two. We transition to act two. So in act one, he was little. Mm -hmm. And in act two, we see the little title at the bottom. that says Chiron. And now it's a different actor, obviously. Also an amazing actor. And nothing really has changed. I mean, he's in high school. He's still picked on. There's kids that are real assholes to him. Kevin is still around. Yep. And we find out that Juan is dead in this act. Yeah. So Um, he still goes over to Teresa's. She still lets him come there, still mm -hmm. supports him, loves him, gives him food and a bed, Mm -hmm. treats him like a normal kid. Mm -hmm. But Juan is dead. I liked this because she's still teaching him how to be a man, you know? how to make a bed. How to make a bed and tells him that he can't sit at the table and hang his head. And she gives him a home and she gives him structure. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Man. Yeah. Which is a weird juxtaposition to his mother. So I love this scene where Chiron goes over to Teresa's house. He has this crazy weird dream where he sees Kevin fucking a girl which well, kevin, kevin had talked to him yeah. earlier that very day about having sex with a girl in a stairwell and mm-hmm. getting caught by the principal and all this kind of stuff and then well kevin kind of has this personality where he's showy yeah where he's showy and i never know whether or not to take him seriously like did it actually even happen that's right. how i took it is he's just showing off for the sake of saying he had a story but he's still somebody that sees chiron you know right. he doesn't give Chiron a hard time about the way that he looks, whereas Mm -mm. everybody else is always like, your pant legs are too skinny and calling him a faggot. Chiron doesn't even want to go downstairs. He's like hanging out near detention so that he doesn't get his ass kicked when he goes down there. He is still a terrified child. Yeah. And I mean, (laughs) whereas I don't blame him. Yeah, I don't either. Whereas everybody else, Kevin just gets to throw around the fact that he's banging chicks in the stairwells, whether or not it's true. I mean, Chiron doesn't get to have that experience in high school. No. So Chiron is obviously drawn to Kevin because again, we see that Kevin is the only person who sees him Mm -hmm. and doesn't tease him, make fun of him and vilify him. Right. And he has the dream sequence, the dream sequence where he Mm -hmm. walks up on Kevin fucking a girl and the girl Mm -hmm. is kind of faceless. He's fucking her from behind. The girl has no real play in it. Mm -hmm. It's obvious that Kevin is the focus. And then he wakes up suddenly and goes back to his mom who had kicked him out the previous night Mm -hmm. and basically said, I'm having someone over. You can't sleep here. Get out. And she is clearly super high, Mm -hmm. comes running to him across the courtyard of their apartment complex She's manic, she's paranoid, and 
the camera does this crazy thing where everything that she says is a voiceover almost. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the camera is in sync with her voice and sometimes it's out of sync and you just see her looking around. It's in slow-mo or it's sped up and you really get this crazy sense of how out of it she is. It's disorienting. Yeah, it's extremely disorienting. Right. Especially when they stop syncing the words with her. They'll show her, but she's not talking anymore, but you can still hear her talking over. And it's nuts. I think that all lends into this experience of you are really seeing what it is like for a child. I mean, now he's a teenager to not have any sort of stability at home. Yeah. You never get those kinds of shots when he's at Juan's or Teresa's. No. There's a bed to be made. There's a place at the dinner the table. The camera's always, always still. still. It's a three shot or a two shot where Juan is not at the table, but it's steady. Yeah. And with, like you said, the scene, Paula comes up to him across the courtyard. She's saying that she got locked out, but then she opens the door right up and he's like, what? You know, he. it's mm-hmm. like there's no normalcy. There's no, no level flatness. And the even more heartbreaking part is that She knows that he was with Teresa because she asks how Teresa is and says she hasn't seen her since the funeral. That's where we know for sure that Juan is gone. And then asks Sharon for the money because she knew Teresa would have given him money because she cares about him. And they were always putting money in his pockets, I assume, so that he could buy himself some food. Or They never tell him what to do with the money or ask him. They just give him money. And as soon as his mom realizes that that's where he was, he's like, give me the money. I know you got fucking money from them. And she instantly tries to play the whole blood ties thing over Mm -hmm. love. And it just shows how easily we can be manipulated as kids to believe that that familial relationship is so much more important than whatever relationships we've built that have so much more love and impact than the familial relationship that we have. Because ultimately, he feels like he owes more to his mom, even though she's never done anything to him, Mm -hmm. than he would to Teresa, because he gives her the money. So it's so painful to see how that is exploited on this kid. Yeah, because no kid can say no No. to their parents like that. It's so fucking rough. And then, you know, when he goes to school, it's not any better. No. And... Terrell is an asshole. The thing that makes the knockdown stay down thing so much worse is what happens the night before. So Chiron, he goes to the beach to be alone and Mm -hmm. somehow Kevin finds him on the beach. And when Kevin finds him on the beach, they have this really intimate conversation about not being able to cry because they're men, but feeling Mm -hmm. like they need to cry all the fucking time. Mm -hmm. And what a burden that is. Well, and Chiron admits that he cries. And he takes a hit of the blunt and Kevin is like, I didn't even know that you smoked. And he says, my mom leaves some shit around sometimes. Yeah. And you could just see Kevin's face. They have such different experiences. We don't even know anything about Kevin's home life, but he's got a car. He's got a blunt in his hand. He's living near the beach. And Chiron is coming home to this house where there's drugs just laying around. And it's heartbreaking. And Kevin is a safe place for him to open up to yeah this is the only person that he has really ever opened up with yeah and he says something about wanting to try new things or have new experiences chiron does and kevin Mm -hmm. pushes him and says like what and chiron basically says why do you have to be so nosy you know and they're joking back and forth a little bit and it ends with them kissing and 
Kevin ends up giving Chiron a hand job on the beach, which we end up seeing from behind. And it's fairly intimate because they are close together. Kevin mm-hmm. has his arm around Chiron and is pulling him close. Chiron's really tucked into Kevin in the scene. Mm-hmm. And he's got his hand on the back of his head. Yeah, he's pulling him as close mm-hmm. as possible so that they can be near one another. And it's so intimate and so unexpected mm-hmm. for Chiron to have this. And it makes what's coming so much worse and so much more life altering because he has his first sex experience. Mm-hmm. He goes home. His mom is completely fucked up. And his mom says, you just don't love me no more, do you? Mm-hmm. And Chiron goes to school next day. And Terrell orchestrates this entire experience where he gets Kevin to play this game called Knock Down, Stay Down that they played in middle school. And by gets, I mean manipulates and bullies mm-hmm. Kevin into playing this game where he has to punch Chiron. And the reality is that Chiron was never going to stay down. (laughs) I mean, for all his quietness and for all of his reserve, it's like having the person who you have your first same-sex experience with and who you have probably been in love with for the greater part of your life beat you up the next day has to be... And your friend. Your only friend. Yeah. Yeah. Has to be the thing that breaks you. I want to go back for a minute to the sex scene because this movie is so good at using the same themes and motifs throughout. Yes. So it happens at the water. It happens at the beach. You have the sounds of the waves behind you. And it's like that scene that you were talking about earlier when he was in the water with Juan and Juan was teaching him how to float. It's almost like a baptism. You know, there's something spiritual or religious about it, especially being in a body of water like the, I'm assuming they're at the ocean, right? They're in Miami. So, yeah. Yeah. So at the ocean. And then for that experience to also be at the water, I mean, there's some newness to it. It's water. So it feels not clean or it just feels bigger. I don't know. I don't even know. Well, we've talked in the past about waves being a metaphor for the female orgasm too. Right. Yeah, that's true. But you're with the earth. Mm -hmm. There's nothing around. You're not in a car. You're not in a bed, whatever. You're just at the beach. And after Sharon comes, Kevin wipes his hand on the sand. Which is just this really weirdly evocative image. They're both kind of quiet and they don't really talk. It's just something that happens. And just with it being so quiet and you almost don't even know how to process it. And in that sense, you're kind of like Chiron because in that moment, you're like, I don't even know what he's experiencing right now to have this kind of experience with somebody who's his best friend. And then they get in the car and they kind of have normal conversations. And then when Kevin drops him back off, they shake hands again. They do their fist bump, handshake thing, but the camera kind of holds on their hands. I mean, we've talked before about lesbians and the hands being the sex organ. I mean, hands are the sex organ here. And that's what Kevin uses in the most intimate experience that he's going to have in the whole movie. This moment. And so I think that's why later on, we'll get to it when Kevin and Chiron meet again at the end. But for Kevin to then use his hands to beat up Chiron is like, fuck. Yeah. It is so fucking heartbreaking. And oh, it, like it's you said, damaging. it breaks him. This is how you break someone's spirit. And ultimately, like, this is what ends up putting Chiron in prison. Because Kevin beats him up. 
And Mm -hmm. that ends up with the entire group of boys basically kicking him while he's down until Mm -hmm. he's completely beaten up. Mm -hmm. And so Chiron doesn't tell anyone who has done it. He starts crying in the principal's office Mm -hmm. and we see him just the sound and the emotion gets more and more taut over and over. And he comes back the next day, stalks through the entire school to his classroom, picks up a chair and breaks it over Terrell's back and walks out in cuffs. Yeah, we got another one of those scenes right afterwards where, like you said, he's in the principal's office. She's talking at him. Who knows what she's saying to him, but the sound gets pulled out again. And then we cut to him in front of the sink. He's got a whole bunch of ice in the sink and is just dunking his head in it because he got his face ripped apart. And all of the diegetic sound pulls out except for the ice cubes rattling. And you get the score coming in again and then we're in act three i'm at a loss for words (laughs) i know because it just shoves you through such an uncomfortable narrative of how this kid's life turns out and how different it could have been but for the actions of a couple people and this i think is the turning point because chiron in a sense this act of him being pushed so far to the edge I like that it sets you up like nobody can blame him. There's not one second of this movie where I'm like, he's making the wrong choice or no, No. you shouldn't do that. It is so inevitable that he has to stand up for himself because he has been broken so many times that he finally breaks the chair over Terrell's back. And then when we cut to act three, he's black, which is the nickname that Kevin has used for him. And he becomes this Juan character, and he's strong, and he's muscular, and he's that person. Yeah. And he's got grills on his teeth or whatever, and... and He's still quiet. He's still quiet and pensive. I mean, he hasn't changed who he is, but he looks different, and he's presenting himself different. Yeah. You know? But for all of the differences that he's become, the thing that's still completely draws him back down to being a kid again is the surprise phone call from Kevin that he ends up getting pretty early on in the act mm-hmm. too. We find out that he's got the whole wand thing down, right? Mm-hmm. Cause he's got his, he's own. even got the crown in his car. He's got the crown in his car. He's got his car. He checks up on his guys on the corner and he's got the same kind of thing going and he's on his own. This is how he is making it work in his life. And he gets a phone call from Kevin. He thinks it's his mom. We know that his mom is still around because she's calling him to check in. But he thinks that it's his mom and it turns out to be Kevin. And you don't know exactly how many years has gone by, at least 10. I think they mentioned it's been over a decade. But yeah. immediately, you're just brought back into that place where you're a child, where you have shared something really intimate and then been broken by somebody. And that never leaves you, you know? No, it doesn't. And even though Kevin apologizes in this phone call for what happened, Mm -hmm. you don't know if it's something that you can ever get over. I mean, you're changed forever by it. Mm -hmm. And so it's obviously something that sticks in Chiron's mind. It's obviously something that is bothersome to him. There's a minute after Kevin hangs up the phone where Chiron has the phone in his hand and he kind of just lets it fall against his cheek and his mouth and he's just kind of holding it there. And he's got those mannerisms of Chiron as a teenager and as a young child. I mean, I brought up his physical appearance because when he's a younger person, he's 
skinny, you know? He's, he's so scrawny he's and kind gangly. Of scrawny. Yeah, he's tall and gangly, and now he's built. I mean, this guy, I gotta he's look He's got up. a 24-pack. Oh, yeah. They're all super cute. I mean, this guy, I gotta look up his name. He played football at University of Texas and ran track. Super badass. Trevante Rhodes. But just the sound of Kevin's voice and hearing that, hearing this apology that you've been waiting for for that long or that you've been trying to stop thinking about that experience and that relationship that you had with Kevin all those years ago for that long and just to get that phone call, you're immediately a child again. I mean, I think we talk so much on this podcast because it's true about how all these things that happen to you when you're children they just fucking live under the surface in you yep. your whole life and they just permeate everything. This is why for me right now it's terrifying to be raising children because I just think about everything that happens in our lives as children that years later you're still trying to get over all this stuff, you know? It's oh, I like, know. It's insane. Yeah. Did you notice that right after that there's a moment where Chiron the camera pans down and he's laying on his bed and you think for one second that he might start to masturbate or something and then he doesn't? Well, it seems like he does in his sleep. Oh, is that what you got? I got it from the next morning when he wakes up, the shot when he wakes up and feels his boxers. Oh. Mm-hmm. Okay, I interpreted that differently. I interpreted it to be like he was about to and then didn't. Oh, that makes a lot more sense. He had yeah. a wet dream. Yeah, like he had a wet dream okay. in the night. That makes a lot more sense. Yeah. In my head, I interpreted it to be that he was thinking about wanting to and then doesn't. Yeah. But no, I'll have to watch it again. That makes more sense. So it seems like Chiron almost uses going to see his mom as an excuse to see Kevin mm-hmm. because obviously he and his mom still have a super fraught relationship. I can relate. Mm-hmm. I would not forgive his mom after all these years, but he clearly has some work to do there or some work that he wants to do there. It's hard to know. So Chiron is in Atlanta at this point. Mm -hmm. We Googled how long it would take to drive from Atlanta to Miami, which is where his mom and where Kevin are. Mm -hmm. And it's an 11 hour drive. Oh, my God. So he gets up the next day and he drives to Miami from Atlanta. It is a long ass drive. It's four and a half hours from Atlanta to where we are. So that's some dedication. So he makes this whole drive. Ends up at the diner where Kevin is. He gets dressed Mm -hmm. to go see Kevin. Puts on a shirt, does up his hair. As an aside, the song that's playing when he rolls up is Classic Man by Jadena. Anyone who has not listened Mm -hmm. to this artist, go listen right now. His entire music library is stunning. I love that song. All of his stuff Mm -hmm. is amazing. Go listen. But does all his hair, puts a shirt on, gets ready. Yes, it's adorable. And then he goes in and he waits for Kevin to notice him. He knows who Kevin is. He just waits for Kevin to notice him. Sits down at the bar. And as soon as Kevin sees him, he's like, why didn't you say anything? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You see the difference between the two of them right away. That Kevin is still the same, outgoing, maybe not as showy. Right. But still kind of showy person because Kevin cooks him a meal wants to show off his cooking skills that he learned in prison. Mm -hmm. And Chiron is still sitting back and waiting to talk. Yeah, he's just a quiet guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's such an interesting depiction of masculinity because imagine seeing Chiron on the street. Everything that we've been conditioned to think any of us would probably make a snap judgment about this guy 
or whatever, but he's, I'm not explaining this well, my whiteness and everything that we've been saying, this reminds me of the movie Traffic. Have you seen the movie Traffic? Yeah. Where if you have two black men walking towards you on a street, I think it's Sandra Bullock in the movie when she's walking with her husband and they move to the other sidewalk. Just this idea that somebody that looks like Chiron, we might, because of the media and all this bullshit, think that this is somebody who's threatening or scary or would make us uncomfortable. And you see in this movie that somebody who looks like Chiron is a quiet, thoughtful person. And he's not scary at all. He is fragile and broken, you know? And how important is it for us to see, for me as a white female, to see this? This is what everybody needs to be seeing, you know? That the black men in this country who are being fucking murdered, shot in the back at a Wendy's fucking drive-thru, are not threatening. You know? Yeah. Like, they're not people you need to cross the street to get away from. No. Oh, yeah. God. This movie. Yeah. I so, know. Kevin's going to cook him the chef special. Yeah. And they sit down and they talk a little bit. They catch up some. Chiron shares how he ended up trapping. And Kevin shares about how he's cooking now. And Kevin shows him that he has a kid now, that he's not still with the mom, but they have a good relationship. And then Chiron asks him about the song. The song that drew Kevin to call him. Mm -hmm. And he plays Hello Stranger by Barbara Lewis, which is a pretty romantic song Mm -hmm. about missing the person that you love. And they leave together after that. Go back to the cooking because you put... Oh, the slow-mo cooking with the hand scene? (laughs) Yeah, so so that's why I brought up the hands earlier because you get all these shots of Kevin cooking with his hands and that to me again i mean we saw the food fight and fried green tomatoes and you see the use of food or cooking somebody a meal as an intimate gesture and the fact that there are so many close-ups on kevin cooking with his hands i don't think that that's a coincidence i think that this whole thing underlying all of it is you know that at some point it's going to come out in chiron because this is how he operates is that you know this whole time he's thinking about it. He's thinking about what happened on the beach, no matter how long ago it was. It is not something that you're ever going to forget. And I think that that's why the cooking for me was so reminiscent and evocative of that moment, because no matter how much time has passed between these two guys, it's still... That was still the most poignant thing that passed between Mm -hmm. them. Yeah, and one of the most poignant things that ever happened in Chiron's life. Yeah, if not the most... Mm-hmm. standout thing that happened to him, which is why everything that happened thereafter was what broke him. Mm-hmm. So when they do go back, they talk in the car a little bit. And honestly, I think I blacked out through the whole car scene because I remember the end scene just being so mind blowing, but they do drive back over a bunch of bridges and Kevin keeps pecking away at Chiron, trying to get him to admit that he drove to Miami just to see him. Mm-hmm. And Chiron will not buy into it. Right. Won't admit it. But his license plate says Black 305 on it. So it's his nickname and an homage to his Miami home. Yeah. So there's all these little pieces that come together that show you that Kevin has never really been that far from Chiron all this time. Mm -hmm. He's adopted the nickname that Kevin gave him. Yeah. 
And when they get to his house, I mean, he's near the beach. They park the car and you hear the water on the waves rushing up. You see the beach. Yeah. He smells the ocean and you see the sand. I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's like it never leaves you. And as soon no. as you see the water, it takes you right back to all yeah. of that, to the moment with Juan and to the thing that happened earlier with Kevin. Yeah. It's that through line that brings it all together. Mm-hmm. And they have this really, really intimate conversation in the kitchen where they finally are just open with one another. And Kevin shares how he was never able to be himself. He was never doing what he wanted to do. He only ever did what other people thought that he was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And now, even though he's working this shit job for shit wages, it's an honest living and he's finally doing what he should be doing. And he's happy. He's Mm -hmm. finally happy. Well, he's got Kevin Jr., Yeah, he's got Kevin Jr. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then Chiron says, you're the only man who ever touched me. The only one. And he says that he hasn't touched anyone since. And then they just sit on the bed and Kevin holds him in that same position like they had on the beach where he's just holding his head and comforting him. And you can just see in this scene, I mean, Chiron is on the verge of tears basically the whole time that he's with Kevin. Yeah, And like I said, he's just been carrying all of this for years and yeah. it finally just bubbles up in him when he is with him because he has had so few examples of love or experiences of love, right? He had the parental love from Teresa and Juan that he didn't get from his mom. And the only kind of romantic love was with Kevin when he was a teenager, Yeah. And never since. And when they were sitting at the diner, he doesn't drink, but he had a couple glasses of wine with Kevin. I mean, it's just this movie is so emotionally intense. Not that much stuff actually happens. You're just seeing the growth of a couple young men, but it's so intimate. Intimate. So intimate. And intense. Yeah. Yeah. And now more than ever, I see it in a completely different way than I ever saw it before. I think this just goes back to the fact that unless you know somebody really well, you really don't know them at all. No. You know, unless you know people's stories and those moments that broke them like this and the things that happened to them in their childhood, people, adults, the more I grow up, the more I'm convinced that we are all just walking around with so much pain and some people cope and grow better than others. And some people don't have, because of this country and because of the way the world works, the resources and the opportunities to get themselves out of it. You know, Sharon and Kevin, these are good people who could be doing any number of things. Sharon goes to juvie for breaking a chair over this kid who tormented him, you know. And beat the shit out of him. Beat the shit out of him that anybody else on the fucking planet would have done the same thing and ends up on this pathway where he's dealing drugs. And the reality is, as a result of us not having the ability to know what anyone has gone through or know these kinds of experiences that have broken our fellow human beings, we can't pass judgment on the way people cope or handle or choose to deal with things. Right. We can only help and offer support and be there. Mm -hmm. But nothing good ever comes from standing in a place of judgment. No. And I think that's probably my biggest 
takeaway lesson from this week. And honestly, from the last year of my life, yeah, is that nothing good ever comes from standing in a place of judgment. And that's something that I have to battle with constantly, that we all have to battle with constantly. Because what's your first jump to conclusion with anything? Is somebody must have done this on purpose, or somebody must be doing something bad, or somebody must have done this just to fuck with me, or must be doing this just to be an asshole. That's where we all come from in our heads initially. Well, yeah, you never know what's going on in someone's life. Yeah, I agree completely. And it takes a lot of work to get out of that. We're having to, or at least I'm having to, relearn so many things. Yeah, all those snap judgments or just anything, really. It's a good reminder that you always have to give everybody the benefit of the doubt, no matter what. And that's really difficult in some cases because... I think I was failed. I went to private school and I was failed by a lot of my education. There has been so much that I've learned just in the past two weeks of reading and educating myself about things that I didn't know before. And that's not just a failure on my part, but a failure on the education system to give us the tools so that we don't make snap judgments about people based on the way that they look or based on their socioeconomic status or based on their career or any number of things. And so it is going to continue to take work that we need to be doing every day for the rest of our lives and that we need to be doing so that our children don't grow up with the same mindsets that we had that came from our parents and all that stuff. So I just hope that we continue to have this dialogue and that everybody continues to challenge themselves and to educate and learn so that we can work towards not just evening the playing field, but eliminating the ways in which Black people, especially Black men in this country, are basically just set up to fail, set up to go to prison, set up to get fucking shot, whatever. And how it's a fucking classist system. Yeah. Yeah. We can go on about that forever. I love this movie. I hope that everybody watched it, those of you that hadn't seen it, I'm sure if you watched it that it is sitting with you. It's going to sit with you for a while. But there are so many really remarkable things about this story and these characters. And like I said, the acting is phenomenal. The cinematography is amazing. The writing is so good, even though Chiron doesn't speak that much, but you just get to know him so intimately. Yeah. Anyway, I love this movie. I know. It's a heart-stopping watch for sure. I mean, it just makes you feel like your heart's in your throat the entire movie. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because Allison and I just finished Hollywood last night, the Netflix show. So I know that you said that you hadn't finished it yet. You got to finish it. Not quite yet. Yeah. And if anybody hasn't seen it, I really highly recommend Hollywood. It's so good. Yeah. What I've seen so far, and I'm probably like three quarters through with it. Mm -hmm. I probably only have a couple episodes left. It's fantastic. I can't recommend it enough. Mm -hmm. Because I remember a lot of the dialogue at the time that this movie Moonlight came out. It was a really big deal for a movie written and directed and starring an entirely black cast about a homosexual man to win Best Picture was a big fucking deal. I know that a lot of people are like, oh, the Oscars, it doesn't matter. Especially because they read La La Land first. Yeah. It was around the time when everybody was freaking out about the whitewashing of the Oscars, Mm -hmm. which is still a thing. Yeah. But for them to have read La La Land first and then have it removed from their hand and be replaced with Moonlight. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it was a huge deal. I remember feeling like it was a giant victory. So I know that for next week, we are going to talk about Martha P. Johnson. Someone in the Facebook group brought it to my attention that the documentary on Netflix may have been 
a documentary that a lot of the materials for which were stolen. So there has been some discussion that there is a podcast on her life from Queer as Fact. So um, feel free to go check that out. Do some research on it. I'm going to be doing a little bit more further research on it myself this week. And I'm sure Leanne will too. Mm -hmm. And we'll be bringing you a little bit more of her story next week. In addition to the documentary. Exactly. Right. Alrighty. Everyone have a good week. Stay safe. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.